0: Digital 410 Productions and the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast are proud to invite you to the special online event.
1: A new Library of America volume presents three powerful first-hand accounts of World War II by veterans of the Pacific War who lived to tell their stories. E.B. Sledge, Samuel Hines, and Alvin Kernan. Volume editor Elizabeth D. Samet, professor of English at West Point, joins historian Richard B. Frank to discuss what makes these memoirs classics of the modern literature of war. This free online event will be Wednesday, March 16, 2022 at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. World War II Memoirs, The Pacific Theater, a conversation with Elizabeth D. Samet and Richard B. Frank.
0: To find more information on this event and to register, go to LOA.org or wtsp. WorldWar2.com.
2: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge.
0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode. Nay, forget that, a special episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War Two based podcast. And it's another Monday night, but it's a special Monday night, and we are all excited to be here joining us, as always. Jeff Copsetta, and one Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how are you all doing tonight?
1: Doing good. Doing well.
0: Can you hear me, Henry?
1: Yeah. Can okay. you hear me? Yep, you're doing well.
0: Um, I I'm guess good. to kick it off, let's just go ahead and intro our special guest. And I can't think of no better way of doing it than uh, playing a little sounder, if you will. Sir, so coming across the airfield today.
2: I've never been more scared in my entire life. And we're all afraid.
3: All of us. The man who isn't scared out here is either a liar or dead. History is full of wars, fought for a hundred reasons. But this war, our war, well I want to believe, I have to believe that every step across that airfield, every man that's wounded, every man I lose, that it's all worthwhile because our cause is just. Of course, if a just cause came with some hot food and cold water, then it'll be okay too. What's up, boys? I thought you might need
1: that. Thank you, sir. I can't Henry, would you, you
0: like to do the, the honor, sir?
1: Yeah, folks, really happy to have with us tonight, my good friend, the actor portraying Captain Haldane in the Pacific miniseries. You just heard him in that iconic scene so, uh, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much,
3: gentlemen, for inviting me.
0: I got to just say real, just... real quick I'm so excited you're here. I get an opportunity to do something I never do on this show, which is to go to my DV collection, my DVD collection, and pull out a DVD. And here it is Lucky Number 11. <laughs> fantastic. Seven. Lucky Number 11. This is a fantastic movie. And when I heard you're coming on, I was like Pacific Peshaw. <laughs> Let's pull out quality film When was that,
1: Scott? When did you when was lucky? Like, 06? Oh uh, I think we
3: filmed it in 2005
1: or so right before, or before like the
3: Pacific that? then? A few, couple of years, yeah. It was um, Okay. I remember getting recognized for it when we were filming in in uh, Australia in Port Douglas. And some guy's serving me a beer at a bar, you know, I'm on the patio. He's like, ah, mate, I recognize you and <laughs> you in the show. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Is listening, He's like, where did I know you from? And listed a bunch of projects. And then he's like, no, the movie I know you from was called The Wrong Man. What? I wasn't in a movie called The Wrong Man. And then he explained to me what it was. And I'm like, you mean lucky number 11. So for some reason in Australia, that movie is called The Wrong Man.
0: I think they do that from time to time. You'll hear like Japanese uh, releases or like German releases will just have. I guess maybe they feel like a name change will better suit that market, and so you hear that from time to times where movies will have a little bit different name. But I th- Burger
3: King is Burger King's not Burger King in
0: Australia either. What is it? Whopper House.
3: <laughs> the wrong burger.
0: <laughs> the wrong burger. <laughs> the wrong burger. No, they don't like anything. Any
3: business that's good, you know anything related to the king or queen in it. So they, they uh, it's called something else. That, yeah. makes,
0: that makes perfect sense. Yep. Yeah. Don't want to stand by the queen or the king.
3: <laughs> so that how, intro just, just brought me back to that night we filmed it there. Now, I like I was, I was talking to Joe.
0: What we'll get into how you got into the Pacific and all that. But since we're on the topic, what is your method for getting into a, um, role or scene such as that like I, said, I did a little bit of background work on um the streaming ser- series um the right stuff and just watching the character the main actors you know s- some of them just sit in a corner wait for them to say action some of them are pacing the floor uh doing their lines over the head everybody kind of has their own method to getting into that scene getting into that character and that's a pretty um uh, pretty rough scene and a straightforward scene how did you go about prepping for that particular scene do you remember
3: Well, I mean, we'd been at it for so long at that point, that was the last one that filmed actually. Really? Yeah, for me it was five and then uh, five, seven, and then six. So by that point you were just so entrenched. Um, And I believe as we shot it, it was pretty much in sequence. So we'd already um, crossed the airfield, done all that. And um, just the, the, the setup, the, the sets themselves put you just right into it. I mean, they spared nothing in, in, in how they created those sets. So um, I was also very tired and I couldn't imagine how tired uh, the skipper would have been at that point. So all that just played right into uh, how I did it. And it was just, it was very easy, very easy at that point to uh, to sink into character and do those scenes.
0: Yeah. It's amazing to think, you know, how tired they were how hot it was dehydrated how heavy everything is back then all the gear and just being in that environment for so long and fear for your life and all the things are witnessing and just you know it's just mind-boggling when you try to even put yourself there
3: yeah and you i mean so many takes to do it and it it takes about a day just to do that one scene and if things mess up and there was actually when we were filming that there was kangaroos <laughs> jumping in the background
2: <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: like these kangaroos were jumping over you know just like big you know great big shell holes in the ground and you're like, yeah cut yeah we got another kangaroo jumping through there um but that yeah i mean the air everything to, i think it was pretty accurate in terms of the size of the airfield the building the specs on it were just um, just bang on and mm-hmm. so there there wasn't anything in your in your vision i mean on the ground there's shells and there's rocks and stuff you people would never see kind of thing um and that was that where we shot in far north uh that was down near melbourne in the U so it was a, a, a rock quarry so the iwo set was there pelelu was there uh okinawa was there and um the the second half of uh episode 5 as we were approaching the airfield it's just a massive massive set like you had to from base camp it took you 10 minutes just to drive to uh, where you had to shoot
0: i think out of you know a lot of the jobs on a movie set i think these set production people are one of the most overlooked when it comes to the general public as you were just saying you know shell casings on the ground and just the the amount of effort that goes into creating that set, even though there's so much stuff that the movie goer or the TV goer will never see, but they just put that much effort into it. They don't get half the credit they deserve. I think.
3: No, absolutely not. Um, Fantastic crew there in Australia. Uh, The makeup department, um, Kira Tripati that had makeup, she won, uh, she won an an Emmy or golden globe. Actually, I, I think, or the makeup, uh, the amount of detail that went into just that, and everything related to uh, your the uniform, the webbing, uh, any any type of equipment you had to touch, the all, all the hills there were fake. Yeah. So they they brought in train cars and then they built like with wood a wooden frame over top and then this like special kind of paper mache stuff over top. Overlayered that and planted trees and um you know bodies and you just like really <laughs> well wow. but but each one i think was um you know about 25 million wow um each episode
0: now when it came to shooting the scenes did the director kind of at that point did they i mean i guess any of the scenes for that matter do they pretty much have an idea of what they want the the scene to look like or is it one of the situations where they're shooting it the same scene over and over from every angle just so they have plenty of b-roll to choose from when they're doing the final edit do you remember shooting the same scene from multiple angles or do they just have an idea what angle they want you just go through it
3: um you know a little bit of both they're certainly very well planned out and because it was on 35 millimeter uh, everything was shot 35 so um the setup's uh, the took a long time. Uh, we we were on a French hour schedule, so it was for the actors. It was a ten hour straight shoot, so you didn't take an hour off for lunch. Just about halfway through, you sit down for twenty minutes, eat, and um, and and you're back at it. I you know they. I, I can't say there was a ton of coverage in terms of, you know, we're going this and then we're going this and then we're going this. Um. You know, I think, as you see when you watch it, uh, trying to keep it pretty open, take in everything, take in the other men. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of close up stuff, but, um, you know, each, each guy obviously had uh, a vision about it and worked a little bit differently. And um, I, I think probably for me, the best experience I had was uh, F6 with uh, Tony Toe directing.
1: I think who, who, go ahead, was hey. it Carl Franklin who who directed episode five?
3: Carl did five, yeah. I mean I, mean, I so had the Tony most Tony Toe did six. Six and Tim Van Patten did seven. Tim okay. did Tim did one, seven, and uh nine. And then Tim Van Patten did kind of a final edit of the whole package and passed that off to uh to Playtone.
0: You know, you were talking about the web gear earlier, and I think Jeff can agree with me on this, being a living historian. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the series is the fact that as the timeline went, so did the uniforms. So in the Guadalcanal scenes, they got the holly liners on there, and they got the early white shirts and the P-41s and the appropriate weapons. And as the show progresses and the campaigns move along, as the gear would have been issued through the timeline, you actually saw that gear showing up in the miniseries. And people being in the living history community and the World War II reenacting communities, a lot of them are, are so fickle on uniforms and authenticity on that. I think a lot of people really appreciate the fact that they had it just about as right as you can expect a production of that level to get it right during the actual timeline throughout the campaigns.
3: Yeah, actually, you know, before I'd even got on camera and checking out, you know, uh uniform the webbing in my helmet and they had the eagle globe and anchor on it and i w- i i did not want that on there because i was the only guy that had it now from production perspective they needed to sort of differentiate who's who and if i guess you know Haldane has that I, I i almost ripped it off before we started shooting because <laughs> i thought you know this guy gets shot in the head and yeah um he it, and he wouldn't have had that on there um also with, uh, I had a shoulder hol- holster with the 45 and you see pictures of Haldane, um, a couple of them I saw when he was on Pavuvu, and he had, a, he had a sidearm
0: Yeah.
3: and I felt actually running around with that and having the 45 kind of flying around and everything else I had to do. It's I'd have preferred to have it a, as a sidearm like he did, but those are, you know, production choices that they had to make as opposed to it being, you know, purely accurate. So um you live with it
0: yeah we've talked about that in the past with henry and jeff and i about the fact that you know his father's character carried a revolver instead of the 1911 that he carried in real life and that's just one of those production decisions that was made how did you go about studying for your role did you go back and just read everything you could up on captain Haldeen, or did you have a little bit of interest in world war ii prior to landing this role
3: uh yeah pro- um Definitely prior interest, you know, a little bit about the Pacific. Um, my my grandfather, my mom's father was in the Navy, Canadian Navy, he captained nine different ships during the Second World War, he sunk two subs. Um, so, you know, from the get-go as a kid, following what I knew about him and uh, history in general, when I got the role, they sent the package of everything about the Pacific War, um, the 1st Marine Division uh, and most beneficial to me uh, was Andy's letters that he wrote back to the Dean of uh, Bowdoin. he was close with uh, uh, the Dean of his college and he was close very close with uh, the football coach he graduated and he went back to Bowdoin for a year to coach um, and then joined the Marines so these letters go from Guadalcanal to Peleliu you know close to just before he died and you know he in them, he's not seen details about battles per se, but he spoke a lot about his men. Um, you know his attitude towards them, about them, how proud of them, proud of them he was. Um, how how great they were. Um, you know how if a man was a guy who was difficult or complained, um, you know it was a big issue. Obviously, but there weren't too many of them. So I was. Able to crawl into his head a bit in terms of how he would relate to his men. And that that helped me tremendously. I had a, a conversation with um, Steve Moore, his nephew, had a nice long conversation with him. And I, I told him, I said, man, these are some big boots to fill, Andy Haldane. And uh, he's like, yeah, but, you know, Andy wouldn't say that. You know, don't think of it that way. You know, I mean, you, you got the job you're the guy and you know just go and do it go do your best and um and and so i did
0: i just want to stop real quick for those of you watching at home if you don't mind um i want to throw out our, t- our text line if you guys have any questions feel free to text or even give us a call that phone number is two three nine two nine nine two one three two jeff or henry if you guys have a question please uh step in i don't want to monopolize yeah, the conversation in there, jeff.
2: yeah i'm i'm you know, I've been spending the past 10 or 15 minutes trying to not act like such a groupie. So I'm just, I'm just kind of holding everything in. Group, group away, Jeff. Group away. <laughs> in fact, we're, we're going to have to have a quick wardrobe change. Hang on, hang on. Just a Uh-oh. We're, we're going to be talking about. Oh, oh, there it is. I haven't, I haven't worn this one in a little bit. And it's funny because I just stuck this on here before. <laughs> yeah. but I typically don't <laughs> But uh, no, uh, Don really kind of kind of hit it on the head. I was my biggest question to you was, you know, um, knowing what I know of Captain Haldane, and I told these guys when I heard that you were going to be on that, you know, there, there was two guys that served in the Pacific that I would have loved to portray, and uh, one was Sergeant Mike Strank, who was one of the flag raisers on Iwo, um, Barry Pepper's character, the Flags of Our Fathers, uh, and the second was Captain Haldane because. Um, you know, my, my previous employment running about a company size element full of living history actors on a battlefield, I had to try to pull from, you know, I was a non-commissioned officer in the army. I was not, I was not a commissioned officer. So, you know, I was in charge of a half a dozen guys trying to keep them alive. So I couldn't even imagine from the company level being in charge of 200, 220, you know, riflemen in a company that kind of, that kind of stress. For such, you know, for such a young guy, I mean, I turned 21 when I was overseas, right? And growing up, you know, watching documentaries about World War II that's going, oh, you know, we were, we were just kids, you know, like, and when you're a kid watching it, it you, you don't realize that until you come back and you're like, yeah, we were just kids, <laughs> you know, in charge of all yes. this stuff. You know, and so I think about now in my life now how I would have handled things, which would have been a whole lot different. So it's easy to be an armchair quarterback a lot, but it just seems to me that you were the Haldane that I pictured. Um, you know, everybody has a, has a different leadership style. Um, you know, some company commanders can. You know, they're in your face, they're yelling at you. You know. They got the first sergeant's barking at you and everything and and that's their that's the way they lead and that's great but i mean for i'm assuming you didn't serve in the military and i apologize if i didn't know that ahead of time i'm assuming you didn't serve so you your portrayal you were a better officer than some of the ones i've served with because you're you i mean there, there just wasn't enough of you in that series because I agree. You, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, um, it, you, I'm trying to put it into words, man. It's it just, when you talk to everybody listens um, yeah. and, and it's, oh. it's the same thing when we're watching it. I mean, you're kind of, it's kind of, you're, you're kind of hard to hear sometimes, you know, there's a lot of background noise and you've just got that quiet confidence. I and mean, you were just, you were just in charge. You you didn't need anything. You didn't need ranks. You didn't need a special weapon. And I get it, they had to put something on you. Sometimes they put mustaches on guys that never had mustache just because they don't have time for character development. You know, I get all that, but man, you just nailed it, man. You nailed it. I, I very much appreciate that,
3: uh, Jeff. Thank you. Um, you know, Andy went completely gray the last month of his life. So for me, just, I mean, I'm probably about 10 years older than most of the actors I was working with, that kind of helped to think about sending them into a situation where they'd be wounded or die. um, That really kind of played on me. So I knew he'd always want to be at front up front um, as much as possible. I hadn't, you know, in five, you don't see a lot of uh, Andy and then uh, we shot seven and we were setting up the scene where we're going up into the hills, the whole company, and because so they were putting gray in my hair in the makeup chair so i was always the last one to show up because it took so long and um anyway they had set up and rehearsed that scene where we go all the way up with the company and i showed up and uh, the skipper dale die was there and uh, i apologize you know uh skipper you know my apologies i was in the chair he's like ah that makeup hit don't worry about it and he goes you know just dale in his way and he's like all right so i played you in the rehearsals and this is what you're going to do you're going to muster you know muster the company and move them up into the hills so you're you're walking along here and uh you know weapons move out do this you know so he's kind of doing all that in my head i'm going I'm just like yeah i'm not i'm not doing that i'm not no but i didn't say anything to him i didn't say anything to the director and um when i went back to set up when we did the first shot i was with uh was Sergeant Bunch, and he was one of the cadre, one of the uh, technical advisors, um, a marine, and um, he was the first sergeant of the company. And I'm just sitting there, and I thought, "Well, how am I going to do this?" And I looked at him, and I said, uh, "Look, when they uh, when they say action, he didn't have any lines or anything, right? He was." Um, and I said, uh, "I'll ask you if the company's ready, and you just nod your head, and I'll say move them out." and then I just walked, and that was it. So we filmed it a bunch of times, finished that sequence, moving on. Uh, I see Dale walking over towards me, and I thought, fuck, what's he gonna say? <laughs> but he, I, don't, I didn't think he was gonna, you know, give me shit about it or anything. I'm thinking, what's he gonna say? Because there were other, t- periods, like in five, when I first did stuff, you know, with sledge in the tank trap, like, get out, get your ass out of that hole. fucking Come on, you know, And there was a lot of this sort of stuff, which I avoided. And he walked right up to me. And uh, he said, skipper, he, he called me skipper all the time. He said, uh, every officer has his own way of leading. And I respect that. Shook my hand and walked away. Um, so yeah, from, you know, that, that gave me the confidence, but I, yeah, I, I just, you know, I knew I had to stick to that uh, in terms of what I read and um, Sledge's book, what everyone had to say about Andy and um, uh, he was just that guy, you know, yeah. he, he, was, he, he was just that guy. And, and as much as you, you felt you could act that, I just took all that away. I, I didn't, I never tried to act any of that. I never tried to force anything. I just tried to to allow it to happen, and you just see everything in this guy's eyes, and and go from there. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. it worked out. Oh yeah, you, you, you definitely up. killed what it. Yeah. CO's got our orders. All right, here it is. Uh, yeah. The entire division's moving across the airfield at zero nine hundred. First and second platoon will lead. Followed by weapons and 3rd platoon. The only way to stop this jap artillery is to get into those hills. And the only way into those hills is across this airfield. When we move, do not stop until we get across. You got it? I, deliver. Any questions? We need water, Captain. I'm working on it, Corporal. Get your gear ready and stand by.
1: Get
0: back to your position. Pack it up. Go second squad, let's get back online. Let's go, rocket. Pack them up. Move it. When it came to shooting that airport scene, when you guys are running through the across the the opening and the pyrotechnics are going off in the background and you see the the um, Body parts of the mannequins laying around, and the, the stuntmen who were told to fall at certain times. How, how kind of in the moment was that for you? How crazy was that scene going off all around you when you were shooting that? Um, I
3: mean, the first few times you're doing it,
0: it's it's insane.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really
3: it's it's intense. It's shocking. Um, the very actually, the very first scene I had when I was uh, the tank trap. I run into the tank trap, and so I run in, say my stuff, and when they flip around to do the front view, and the tank blows up, I jump in there, and um, they're just you know my cue was for this to blow up, and I had the earplugs in and everything, um, so we go to and we shoot, and I, it, the the charge for it was late, so. As I'm asking hillbilly and trying to find a radio, I sort of stumbled that because it's, it's, you know, everything's all quiet. I hadn't the first day on set, you haven't hear anything. And then when they roll all those explosions, it's as, you know, I mean, they're all fake, obviously. And uh, the weapons, I mean, it is, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, where's my left foot, which is my right foot? Like, what the fuck? And um, I messed it up. And it wasn't horribly bad or anything, and Carl, but Carl was directing, um, you know, so the tank blows up. But to reset and do that again, that, sure. that pyro would have cost about 40 grand. And it was good enough, but I got out of there and I'm just, I'm sort of horrified. Like, oh man, my very first shot, I fuck it up. Tony was brilliant. You know, he's behind Carl. He's like, don't worry about it. We'll get it netting. editing. But I'm standing there and I look at Carl as he's rewatching, the, you know, he's watching the replay. And he's in his chair, and he's and he's looking, and then he turns and he sees me, and he goes,
0: <laughs> "Busting your balls!" And I was, I'm like, "Oh no, I'm just oh shit." That would be like That's, a two hour reset. <laughs>
3: yeah, and I mean, it turned out fine, um, you know. But so by the time you get to the airfield, it, it just it was every time we had to uh, shoot a sequence, we'd uh, walk through it, and then there's all these markers, all these flags where the pyro so you knew and you'd walk it and you'd walk it and hearse with camera then half run half run half run and then full run full run but when everything was lit up um, like no acting required you know and when we got to that building where the um, guy gets shot and I turn around and fire uh, kill him that's the only time I fired my weapon in the show really and yeah and Dale had that put in I arrived and it wasn't in the, in the, in the dailies. It wasn't in the script and we set up and explained to us and he, he walks over to me and he's like, I got, I got the skipper a kill. (laughs) You need, you needed kill. So I I talked him into doing this kind of, I mean, they, you know, they agreed to it and everything like that, but yeah, that was the only time I fired.
0: I can imagine the calamity of sound around you can, you know, obviously the scenes that you have a lot of dialogue, they said it, you, you know, action but in those scenes where there's a lot of gunfire i can imagine the first few days it would be a little hard to hit your hit your cues because you know on a smaller much obviously super smaller scale um being living historians jeff and i were were at public events where people don't realize that you know reenacting is kind of a small play we have a a planned out thing what's supposed to happen which way the guys are supposed to go things are supposed to happen and when you got 50 60 70 firearms around he's shooting off blanks and down here in florida and some places else we have tanks going off and sometimes you get all that sound going off and all the uh percussion blast and all that it's sometimes it's hard to remember exactly where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do i can only imagine on a movie set with all those pyrotechnics it at least the first few takes and you know it it would be hard to hit your cues and remember the exact dialogue especially when they're supposed to be
3: yeah. It's, I mean, first experienced it in the boot camp, uh, and you know, no, obviously no cameras around at that point, but one night, you know, my boot, the two separate boot camps, uh, the one I was in, which was about a month and a half later than the first one. And, and we had a exercise where you go up into these Hills. They turn off the lights at the camp. Well, it's in the rainforest in Australia. So it's pitch black. I mean, you, you could, you, you had to grab the guy's webbing in front of you to know he was there. And we get up to this landing part and then we get attacked. So, uh, there's Joe Farnsworth and Sergeant Bunch were behind a 30 cal and you know, tat, 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 so it just lights up Muzzle and you flash. see them and then it goes dark and then we fire back. So, you know, guys, I had the carbine guys with the M1, uh, the Tommy, a bar and everything it just light up, but all you could see was just these flashes. And I was with um, Lieutenant Stokey, who's Marine, uh, like Marine correspondent. I believe he's similar to uh, Dale. And um, I was with him the entire time doing boot camp. And he's standing there, and I'm behind him, and he says, Haldane, Haldane. And I'm and like, Sir, you know, LT, behind you. And he didn't say anything. And I just kind of imagine that, I don't know, maybe if he had some kind of flashback reaction, sure. you know, maybe just, just odd, not that he was even necessarily thinking about it or scared, but some experience he had in Vietnam. Um, Cause on a, on a different day, when I was walking around with him and I'm asking him, you know, maybe stupid actor questions about like, you know, when you were in Vietnam, would you look up and find the Southern cross and, you know, mark your bearings and get your directions. And he's just standing there and he goes, I never looked up long enough. Like, yeah, of course, you're not going to sit there in the jungle and you're like, you know, whack kind yeah. of thing. Um, but that, yeah, so experience in a boot camp. by the time you got to set and doing it, it was, you know, you're a little, uh, adjusted to it. But I tell you when that 50 cal went off, man, whew, that, even though it's blanks, so it wasn't as loud as everything else or, you know, the real deal, but, and, and then whenever to go off, you know, cut and then you hear Dale go. Deal, he'd say, That's the sound of freedom.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure you experienced it too with the, some of the tanks and that going off. um Once again, they're blanks, but still makes the sand bounce off your trousers, even though you're 50, 60 miles, uh, 60 yards away. It puts off some muzzle blast. Henry, I think I stepped on your question. Uh, you're getting ready to ask when I. No,
1: not at all, man. i would dished this up for you guys. Have at it.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought the boot camp because we all know that the band of brothers had the, you know, the in-depth boot camp and i was kind of wondering if the of the pacific had the same thing and clearly you just kind of mentioned that it did how long was the pre-filming boot camp to get you guys kind of cohesive and and acting as one
3: so for the guys that were in episode uh, one and two um minus john burnfall he was in mine so those their boot camp was like i said about a month and a half ahead of time so they didn't want to bring everyone else and then have you sit around Australia. And theirs was uh, nine days, eight, eight or nine days. And uh, the one I was in was like four days. Four, I think four. Yeah, four. Of course, we got all kinds of flack for, yeah, hey, you guys only did four days. But um, <laughs> when I when I showed up in Australia and hang out for a couple of days at the hotel and then, I don't know, boot camp maybe the next day and I'm walking back from town, i gone shopping and there's this guy running. Along the path, you know, and he's got the squared away hair and shades on, and I'm like, "Man, that guy must be in the show or something like that." He runs by me; I don't recognize him at all. Never met him or anything like that. And he just smiles at me. He got this kind of shit-eating grin. I'm going,
2: "What the fuck was that?"
3: Cut to when I show up for boot camp, get on the bus. Well, there he is—the guy who jogged past me the day before, smiling at me—is Freddie Joe Farnsworth. <laughs> it was, and uh he didn't say anything to me. We got off the bus, got lined up, and Lieutenant Stokey gives, you know, a little little talk, told us what was going on, and I was praying that I wouldn't get separated from the rest of the guys. Uh but I kind of knew I might be, and then so we finished and he said, Hal Dan, you're with me, everyone else over there. So I go up, starts talking to me, and he says, You know, you're gonna be with us. You know, get you set up in a tent uh behind the cp here and uh, you'll be with us the whole time so i'm walking back there with him and um freddie joe uh hi freddie if you're watching um and gunny whitlock were walking towards me you know with the, the stetson just pulled down perfectly at the brow there and Freddie's just eyeballing me and i you know lt's talking i have no idea what he's saying because freddie just and he gets about three feet away and he goes, going back to your bitch tent, bitch. And he <laughs> spits tobacco right at my feet. That was the first thing he said to me. And, uh, you know, I got to admit, I did wet myself a little. It felt, I was like, oh, God, you know. And then I spent three days uh, in CP with them and they barely said a word to me. But... Um, Without that boot camp, without having that, you know, without the cadre, without those guys um, training us, it never would have been close to what it was, obviously.
0: So, so did they have uh, you, kudos did, they have, to them. did they have you sleeping in a wall tent and everybody else was in pup tents because of your rank, or were you in a pup tent as well?
3: I was in a pup tent, but they had someone set it up for me, <laughs> I didn't but know. it was right the, the the CP, you know, they had this big tent, I think a wooden floor and they had cots and you know a bar and a jacuzzi and a frit now i didn't have any of that but my tent was set up right behind them which was right at the edge of the forest And of yeah. course you know australia you're thinking snakes spiders there's so many ways to die and i get in there at night and i'm exhausted and everything but i didn't take off any of my uniform i left the gators on i didn't want anything crawling in my pants the carbine was right you know by my leg <laughs> and my the tent flap was open you know i was ready to go and i heard something rustling around in this forest like what is that a wild boar or something like that like what the fuck is that um uh, uh yeah i uh, um yeah. i mean i i didn't have any special treatment because they ignored me the entire time and in you know i only had four days so uh stokey he he told the other guys to just hey he's off he's mine you know it was It was a lot to take in 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 four days, so I just, I studied him, like there's a good part of um, Lieutenant Stokey in uh, in Haldane, because he was similar that way, never uh, raised his voice. Uh, When he did, you knew it, Um, you know, firm and firm, but fair, Um, very, very uh, decent guy. And you could tell he just, you know, cared so much about uh, everyone that was with him. So I, I would. Thank God, I mean, I was able to take that with me. And then Dale showed up the second day, I think. You know, so you're meeting Dale Die. you're like, oh, Dale Dye, man, amazing. So he gives us a talk and he comes by to talk to me afterwards and uh, forget exactly what he said. But, you know, you're in boot camp. you're a Lieutenant or you're ranked underneath when you graduate. So I was uh, Lieutenant Haldane, um, you know, Freddie Joe, I don't know. Can you swear on the show? I guess I already
0: did. No, uh, yeah, we're we're a full equal opportunity uh, cussage here, so have
3: yeah. Out. No, I mean Freddie kind of had a name for everybody, and I was uh, Lieutenant Dick Licker.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, 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 Dick!
3: Uh, you know, can I do a good friend? Dick Licker, get over here, and learn some. Um, but when I met when I met Dale, and he's like, "All right, Lieutenant Haldane see you on set kind of thing and shakes my hand and i said i don't know why i said this but i went it's captain sir and as the words are coming out of my mouth I'm like, oh fuck why did you say that and he's still holding my hand and he squeezes it just even tighter and pulls me in a bit and he goes not till i say yarn, god damn it let's go in my hand and walks away so yeah i was a little uh, i was a little I was a little shaken by that, but I made it through.
0: We do have a text question. Um, I was a little caught up. Oh. I actually had to do some Googling here, uh, but you kind of already answered. It said, for Scott, uh, was Freddie's boot camp as tough as he makes it sound? Jacqueline Bazalone.
3: Oh, Jacqueline, yeah.
0: So was uh, Scott, did Scott have such a hard time as you did? Or is, was his as bad as he made it sound, or was he being a little more dramatic? Who, oh. I'm sorry. No, she was asking for Scott. Was Freddie's boot camp as tough as he made it sound?
3: I'm so. I'm assuming she means how he how he ran it. Um, or, is he, or is she talking about another person? I don't he, know. Look, he was he he, he was he, he was hard, but he was fair. You know, if you just shut your mouth and did your thing, you were okay. But he was still going to find a way to get under your grill a bit, see what you're made of, kind of thing. And um, I grew up playing all kinds of sports guys yelling at me and saying you're no good and all that thing so i mean you know the way he's doing it it uh it has an effect on you you know there were there were some actors in there that uh that had a real hard time with it um but i don't there there wasn't anything that wasn't fair you know and if you knew what was going on and you you absorbed that experience um you're okay guys that rolled their eyes or had a problem with it or said anything you know uh that was a problem you know it just m- kind of made it worse for everybody else
0: yeah I guess ima- I guess I can imagine based on a person's background whether they were in sports like you were saying or if maybe somebody was not so much and maybe did a lot of drama club and didn't get yelled at a lot in their childhood that uh, being in that environment for the first time might have caught them a little off guard or maybe thought oh they're just being over dramatic but the whole purpose of that boot camp is to get you in that mindset so that when you're doing the the series you're and that mindset to make you look more soldiery and make you look like you know what you're doing
3: yeah i I, you know we do pt and i wasn't in great shape so you know two miles drop do the push-ups the sit-ups for two minutes run back i was gas coming back and i'm you know i'm supposed to be leading so i'm waving guys like yeah yeah go ahead it's okay go ahead go ahead (laughs) all right no problem you know some guy was puking and i my legs were just burnt like i mean i could barely get back to the camp and I got back there and uh, Gunny Whitlock, he's standing, he Was like, Haldane, like Gunny, go over to him. And, you know, he, he he didn't read me the right act. He's just saying, you know, you're the leader. You got to lead and you got to be in the front. And I didn't tell him, tell him anything about my fucked up knee or anything. Like, you know, I just, yes, Gunny, yes. Yeah, yeah, got it. Got it. No problem. Um, you know, they, they break you down. It, it was hard for sure. Um, I'd have liked to have been in the big the, the longer boot camp. And like I say, these uh, you know, Freddie and and um Gunny Whitlock and Sergeant Punch and Stokey at night around the CP, I mean they they did not say a word to me. Well I wasn't I- in any part of the conversation or anything like that, which is which is fine. But when we finished and you graduate and they come to, you know, Lieutenant Stokey salutes and then Freddie saddles up. I think Stokey pinned the evil anchor on you. And um, you know, Freddie had been calling me Dick Licker for for uh, for three days, and so Buddy salutes. He's like Captain Haldane, you know, and I salute him. And as soon as he called me Captain Haldane, I felt myself tearing up. Oh damn! Like I was just oh, the gunny loves me. <laughs> you know what I mean? You get that? <laughs> and then I you know became good friends with him. But afterwards, he's like, Yeah, man, I saw you. I saw you tear up. I saw you tear up. It's like fuck. Yeah, yeah. I admit it.
0: Now you're talking about the lack of PT. I think even if you're out running two miles before production in a pair of Brooks or some sanctionees boondockers aren't known for the ankle support or arch arch support. So even making that transition no. where you're running in boondockers, if you don't have the if you don't have the uh, leggings on, you don't have they do not have they are very out of all of the. Um, American ally footwear between the rough outs, the jump boots, and then the Marine Corps boondockers, especially if you got stuck with some that were provided by the fine people of what price glory, they did not have a lot of support to them. So I can only imagine trying to run two miles in those things.
3: I I thought these, I thought they were fake. I mean, I'm like, are these what they wore? I couldn't believe what they wore. These like that type of footwear and essentially pajamas, um, and your webbing. It amazed me. I mean, they you know, the the for the production I had the the gators on the whole time. And around Paleloo, I kind of I'm you know, even with the heat and the heat when we were filming in Australia, I kind of appreciated it because you're you know, on any sort of shrub or rock or anything like that. It just you know, you get big cuts on your calf or something like that. I mean, maybe it might sound trivial or you're like a you know, a bit of a baby or something like that, but I didn't mind kind of having that extra protection at that time and um I I just like I said man I can't believe that what they had you know you see you, you know for for their kit and say with band and the paratroopers what they had I mean obviously completely different environment and everything like that but
0: yeah, I mean just thin what, cotton and Jeff and I've talked about this yeah. in the past when it comes to the European theater I tell people, you know, on D Day, they landed in essentially their church clothes. They had on wool pants, wool shirts. Some even had a tie, a cotton jacket. And the only thing that made it a combat uniform was the rifle, the webbing, the the uh, helmet, and the um, the gaiters or the leggings. Other than that, they landed on in Normandy on what their parents and friends were wearing back home to work in church every day. It's it was amazing the uniforms and how basically rudimentary they were.
3: Yeah, well, they and. You know in terms of the how they dress them they as the episodes go on they're broken down more and more so i had the one you know the one i was wearing and then a spare that were basically identical but you're wearing them the entire time right so this is six months of filming yeah and um you know they they can't wash them i mean they, they clean them in some sort of deodorizer but I, I tell you my blouse could have got up and walked away from australia on its own by the end of it i mean it was just like it, it was
2: I'm sure they burnt it afterwards. It was, it was horrifying.
0: Jeff, it's all you friend.
2: Oh man, I'm just absorbing. I'm, I'm, you know, I think about all of the stuff that we wore and the complaints, you know, when we first got the outer tactical vests, the OTVs and then the, the big sappy plates that you'd have to wear front and back and everything, you know, and, and we were issued those about six months before we went over. And I just remember guys going, Oh my gosh, like, you know you can't move you feel like you're just so restricted and you know this is before i started in, in the world war II field you know reenacting and thing it's like two opposite ends of the spectrum because you know doing you know wearing just the hbt's or p41s whatever you think about god i can't believe i was complaining about having to wear all of that because you know when when the metal hits the meat like you're saying you want as much protection as possible so yeah it's just it's incredible thinking about what the average, you know, infantryman wears today on the battlefield, as opposed to, you know, like Dom is saying, it's just a set of wools or, you know, the, the HPTs. It, it, yeah. It, it blows you away. The, you, you at least had some a little bit of confidence that what you were wearing was going to, you know, had some ballistic protection and, and they did, you know, um, they would stop a, they would stop an AK round or something like that, you know, the plates, but yeah. That's why we do what we do because that, that generation is just something special.
3: Yeah. Unbelievable.
2: I mean, you yeah.
3: think of the the dysentery, you think of the malaria, these guys, you know, it's uh, right. the, the nine months they spent in Australia after Guadalcanal and 90% of them had malaria. Um, Nandy talked about that and you know, in his letters and just, and even the extra stuff that I had, like the the bag for the map and you know, I. I think, you know, my runner would have had that. I, I was comfortable with the carbine. I didn't, you know, I had to have the glasses and, you know, all this stuff. And I just thought maneuvering that kind of stuff sort of got in the way for what I wanted to do. But um, yeah, everything else was,
2: it. weren't much to it. Yeah, yeah and you, you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier too. I was going to talk a little bit about it, um, you know, with uh, not exactly firing your weapon as much as the guys that you're leading you know and that was a problem and you know and don don was a volunteer for me at, at, at the old battlefield and you know guys just love you love squeezing the trigger it's fun you know popping brass and uh but there's a limit you know uh, and i would tell some of these guys like hey i thought you were one of my squad leaders you know why, why are you black on ammo before we even hit the main line of resistance oh man you just need this just more ammo like no, you need to get busy leading these guys, not squeezing the trigger all the time. And, you know, I would come off with, and, and I ran with a Thompson and it's, it's hard to keep your, your shot count down with a weapon that's 600, 800 rounds a minute. Um, but typically end of this 10 to 15 minute uh, portrayal, I shot about 30 rounds, you know, half a magazine and then I would do a mandatory mag change, you know, things like that. Cause you're just too busy. You're just too busy. And like I said, Don's Don was there I and mean, you've seen, you, you kind of know what it's like to be in a, in a scene like coming across the airfield with with what we used to do over there with the pyrotechnics and the the special effects and everything going off and smoke choking you know smoke choking you out and tanks rolling in front of you and everything going on so um yeah i I had
3: the m1 in boot camp not the carbine so training with that initially and, and and then you know learning to to run and uh change a mag Mm-hmm. with a with, with an m1 you know fuck like are you kidding me
0: and not get him
3: one no thumb. thumb i got no, yeah i got no thumbs left but right they, you know they're so good at um at, at how we were uh trained that by the time you came to film you just didn't think about any of that stuff it was second nature and you were more concerned about that than you were about acting uh for a lot of us we wanted the marines you know we were we were fighting for them in a way, in a sense, say, as actors that you, you, you know, you look to Dale or, you you know, look to Freddie in terms of, did I do this right? Not about your line or your character or anything like that. Like essentially we forgot about all that stuff and we um, you know, just, just trying to be as accurate as possible. And I think the characters for most everybody just came out of that, you know, and, and that was, that was a good thing because you, you just, you weren't thinking about getting an Academy Award or anything like
2: that. You're just like, fuck, I gotta load this right or I'm gonna look like an idiot, you Mm -hmm. know? And that's what I wanted to talk to you about the most for sure because yeah, the the last uh, film production I was on, you know, I had a bit part in it, but I was mainly brought on as the advisor and and of course costume design because I had to do all the uniforms and the web gear and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, that was small independent film stuff. And um, I, I may be getting into a larger production over the next two years. Uh, another World War II film, but but coming on as the advisor. And it's, it's a little intimidating to go from, you know, indie film level to very large production level overseas. And that was one thing I really wanted to ask is, you know, from that perspective, you know, I mean, I know guys like Freddie and of course, Dale died, you know, the one and only. Um, but yeah, how much interaction the actors really had, because it, it, there must be a fine line between, uh, you know, you can't fire this actor. <laughs> you know, I mean, this guy's got right. the part. So, it's just like you're out of here. Give me somebody else that knows how to work this. Weapon. You can't do that. So it's, I I'm just enjoying hearing you know from from your perspective the amount of respect that that these guys garnered right off the bat. You know, from the actors that you know, you know you're you've got this part. You know you're gonna have this job. You're Captain Haldane. Whatever they do, I mean, I, I would imagine there's a sense of. um some sense of you know stability that you know you're the guy but they've got to be able to drill you to a certain point too to to really bring that out of you right yeah
3: absolutely um you know i I, dale uh there were two units shooting at the same time you know different episodes and uh i was with the blue unit so dale was with my unit and lieutenant stokey was with red unit and um Freddie was with Reds. So I didn't see him much when we were filming. I mean, you know, here and there when it, things sort of crossed over. So Dale was, in, he was in my ear the whole time. I mean, he had me promote background enlisted guys. He'd pull me aside and say, you know, this is all part of the process. And, uh, you know, we you know, for the morale of these guys. And, and these background guys were right into it. And you know, he'd say, well, that's uh, you know, good Johnson or, you know, he's getting he's getting promoted today. And uh yeah, I want you to I want you to do that. And uh so, you know, line him up and uh dying to come in and uh, you know, promote him. And and I'd never done any of that. And we're filming the episode and um and again, I think Bunch was with me. So I just uh I turned to him and I'm like, what the fuck do I do here? Uh I, hey, I tell you what. Why don't you, I'll just say to you, you, you know, muster the troops and get together and put them on. These background guys, um, you know, the ACOR, uh, they did the boot camp. Um, th- they did a phenomenal job. But I'd go, like, you know, to the washroom or go to the truck to get something to eat, and guys would be Captain Aldane saluting me, you know, it, it's a, it, all the time. Never was I like, called Scott. maybe by a director or something like that dale called me uh um skipper or haldane all the time and that was a great comfort to me to have him around um all the time because i you know you you sort of knew if you were getting things right directors they're not really you know they'll ask you to do a scene again or maybe change something a little bit differently but their mind is you know so many other things to to think about so um it, it was it was he's, he. I think he, he calls me Skipper to this day. That's awesome. Freddie calls me other things.
2: <laughs> well, like I said, man. Like I said at the beginning of the show, you you really nailed it. And you know, looking at pictures of Captain Haldane, he wasn't he wasn't the best looking guy. Which is you know obviously why you qualified for it. You know, I, I'd have definitely they'd have had to ugly this up, but <laughs> it messed me up.
3: Yeah. <laughs> one yeah. on you man.
2: <laughs> no, well, well done. Well done. I, we uh are we going to have time to talk a few a few books or uh Yeah, we we can, up, we can get into a doing? few
0: books. Real quick, I, he was talked Scott was talking about his uh P41. He had two pairs and after 6 months they were so muddy and dirty and I'm thinking it took me 6 years of not washing mine to get the sweat stains in the right spot and actually getting the holes in the right spot half the reenactors and living historians would love their uniform to probably look as bad and scuzzy as yours looked after you're done filming. Because one of the biggest criticisms guys will get when they post pictures on Facebook is your uniform's too clean, which is true, but I can't bring myself to artificially weather my uniform. So like every sweat stain on here, hang
2: it up in a tree outside. I can't do it.
0: it. I can't (laughs) do it. I, I, this has six years of Florida and Alabama sun on it. All all the holes in here are from thorns and everything, and all the sweat stains in the right spot. And I will say this. One of my bucket list things was to do an amphibious landing from a landing craft. And three or four years ago, we did the 75th anniversary reenacting in Fort Morgan, Alabama. And we were supposed to have two landing crafts, but due to the hurricane, the guy who owned one of those landing crafts worked on an oil rig. He couldn't get it out of dry dock quick enough for inspections, for insurance, yada, yada, yada. We still did a landing off of one landing craft. And that was amazing and a bucket list filler. And when we were making that mile ride from the marina down to the landing area where we did our landing for the wave one and then wave two and three came in. And uh, it was really just put yourself in that position. You know, being a a World War II amateur historian or reading all the books and seeing all the pictures of guys coming down landing crafts and the first view photos you see and then actually being on there and running down that ramp and seeing how slippery it is. I can only imagine what it was like for the guys filming the Guadalcanal scenes and some of the other amphibious landing scenes where you have more than one landing craft coming in and just doing that for that production had to be just completely mind blowing to be stacked in those and actually having more than just one out there. I can only imagine how fun that would have been on those days.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, you couldn't see a damn thing. Um, they're diesel. Yep. So so the smell of it. Uh, you know, rocket in there, you know, there were guys puking. Just just filming it. Um, I trained in it, but then when we came to shoot the landing, I, I was not in the pitcher vehicle, which really I'm like, Hal Dane's not gonna be the first guy off the Amtrak? Like, what the fuck? You know. But just because of the way they were shooting it, the narrative and had to be on sledge. But um I was uh, yeah, I was pretty disappointed by that 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 he wasn't the first guy over, but, um, you know, obviously couldn't do anything about it, but sure. he, he, and he'd have been the front, you know, he, he'd have been the first guy over there for sure.
0: Well, I think it's that time of the podcast where we're going to talk about a few books before we wrap it up and then uh, we'll give a farewell to Scott and all the final wrap up stuff. But, uh, Jeff, you know, sadly I'm, I've been so busy. I'm still reading the same Bellevue <laughs> book. I'm almost done with it. Um, which, um, interestingly enough, in that Peleliu Tragic Triumph, there's a lot of quotes from your father in there, Henry, from like letters where people asking him questions about commanders and stuff. We'll get on into in a later episode. But Jeff, since you brought it up, what book are you currently reading? Well,
2: uh, it's actually, I'm just about to finish it up. It's the same one I talked about the last episode uh, that I did with you guys. But there, I came across uh, something in here that I think is, is extremely relevant to uh, current events today and just to set the tone, this book is, is about five uh, B-17 bomber crewmen that kind of all lived in the same area in Connecticut. And this guy just kind of started meeting these guys at, at like a reunion breakfast and and wanted to get their, their uh, stories in print. So this guy's not like a big time author really, but um, did, did a really good job with this. And this one particular uh, B-17 navigator uh, was flying, uh, bombing a, a target in Northern Italy and uh, just as they started the bomb run, direct hit by flak. So they haven't dropped their bombs yet. And literally comes to the aircraft completely exploded. He literally comes to flailing through the air at approximately 15,000 feet, and just hurling towards the Alps below. And um, as he comes to, you of course, <laughs> what the heck just happened? Kind of thing. You know, he's trying to get his bearings. He's flying through the air, and he remembers. He still has a parachute on, so he remembers to try to grab the ripcord. And just as he goes to grab the ripcord, he smacks into the Alps. And they were so covered with snow that it actually helped pad the landing. This guy fell 15,000 feet into the Alps, into the snow, and lived to talk about. He had some broken bones. He was pretty messed up, but alive enough to be taken to a, uh, a STALAG, a POW camp in, in Austria, just across the border. So he's sitting there, and, and they're, they treat him fairly good. You know, there's some English-speaking nurses that are kind of helping him out. There's a couple other wounded German enlisted guys that kind of help him go to the bathroom and everything. You know, at that point, they're just men that are fighting. It's not about whose side, right? Well, this German officer comes in, and uh, who also speaks really good English, and and they just kind of talk different things from different perspectives. And uh, I I just thought this was incredible. The uh, the German officer uh, looks over to him and he says, "Quote: "Uh, When are you Americans going to realize that the real enemy is the Russians?" Why do you not just join us and we will defeat the Russians together. And I thought that was pretty prophetic for that was January of 1945 that this guy has this conversation with a German officer oh. and uh, look at, look at where we are today. And, uh, I got one in the mail today. I ordered this because this has to potentially do with my new film project, uh, about the Pathfinders at D-Day. If I mean, this is, I, I, I opened it just briefly. This is incredible. I mean, I can't believe this isn't more, I mean, you know, I've got Harlan Glenn stuff and Matthew Bianchi and guys like that for that reference uniform and gear material, but this is incredible. And I wanted to bring that up because if any of our listeners have any other information about Pathfinders and Eureka beacons, I'd be really interested because that's going to be my life probably for the next, uh, next two years. And then real quick, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Henry. I mentioned this to you guys the other day. Um, I came to work and, um, you know, uh, Scott, I'm a, I'm a high school teacher right now. My, my goal is to uh, to be teaching high school history in the next year or so. So I'm finishing my bachelor's degree um, that's awesome. and I get to work one day and two of the, two of my colleagues in the history department, I had mentioned, I'm trying to collect everything I can about, uh, you know, bomber boys. I'm a big bomber, you know, B-17, 8th Air Force guy, right? I want to try to collect all this stuff. And they came across something and they showed me, I said, Oh, that's, that's, that's pretty neat i've never seen one in person and about a week later they purchased it for me they bought it for me so this is a this is an issued uh survival bolo knife wow with the sheath on. yeah so it was a foldable um you know collapsible survival bolo and it's just there's only like two known makers i think that that were made during the war so it's pretty small i mean it fits in my fits in my new use that bag with, with all my other goodies, but I was just blown away. Cause you know, that thing was, it was not cheap. And uh, <laughs> I just,
3: yeah. It's your allowance.
2: And that it's was a great condition. Well, too. they bought it for me. I mean, that, that's what was, yeah. Oh, it's an in incredible condition. So that just, that was really cool. And one of those guys lost his uncle on, on his 25th mission over Berlin. So he just really Whoa. appreciates the fact that I just, you know, I'm really connected with it. So for him to, to gift that to me was
1: was really cool so that's my that's my show and tell tonight nice henry yeah i'm about 200 pages into richard frank's tower of skulls so that's that's my current reading project that is that is not a quick read
0: (laughs) is it like (laughs) number five font
1: (laughs) no but it it is not really at the sixth grade level yeah. Which I would be more comfortable with. But.
0: How about you, Scott? What do you do in your leisure reading? Are you a World War II guy? Are you a fiction guy? How do you fulfill your freedom and your, your spare time? Are you a reader for that matter, I guess, would uh, be the first question, other, other than reading scripts?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit of both. Actually, you know, a buddy of mine is cleaning up uh, the basement of his old place, and his old man, kept all these Playboy magazines. Nice. From set oh, late seventies, eighties. And uh, the interviews in them. I mean, I know everyone says that and it's like, hey, I mean, you know, I don't mind the pictures either. But there are some fantastic interviews in there with all kinds of, you know, people in the arts and everything else. So I was recently just, you know, leafing through a bunch of those. And then um, yeah, I wanted to show you that that I mentioned before. I forget who told me about this, but this the Marines uh, Leatherneck magazine. This is from January 1945. Got it off at of eBay.
0: It's a beautiful cover,
3: and this is the one that lists Andy Haldane as a killed in action. And I think that was Mitch. Uh, I think that was Mitch that told me about this. So I went on to to eBay there. And it was like 40 bucks or something like that. All the old ads and articles and everything that was going on at the time. Just fantastic.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I have a few life magazines around here from the forties and you read the articles and you would think 80 years, isn't that long ago, grammar and dictation and the use of the English language couldn't have changed. Holy hell. You read some of those articles (laughs) and you're like, is this old English? I mean, just the word, the phrases, just the, the literally the grammar they use has changed. We've dumped it down so much, especially in the internet age, but just some of those articles, like I would get these ideas like, Oh, I'm going to read some of these articles on the podcast and do like pre-recorded monologues. And I'm like suffering through them. Like n- the, they're super long and just th- their use of the English language has changed so much over the last 80 years. You wouldn't think it w- has, but it has dramatically.
3: Absolutely. That's, you know, Half the time we do these things with Henry, I can't understand what he's saying because he uses all the big words.
0: (laughs) Well, him and Jeff are definitely the smart one on this show. I'm the one who kind of, (laughs) you know, they're the ones like, are we texting a fifth grader about our show? Because I'm with my, I was born in Kentucky, grew up in Ohio, moved to California. Now I've been living in Florida for all these years. So my accent's just completely effed. And so with my accent and my speech impediment, and I'm driving down the road doing voice to text. Google just makes up shit and puts it in there. I can only imagine, like, what the? Henry and I are like,
2: (laughs) what
1: does that even mean? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I'll be sitting at work, and I'll get this message. What the (laughs) hell is he talking about? I I think
0: us Southerners and us people with speech impediments, we need a class action lawsuit against Google and Apple for their horrible dictation on their voice-to-speech. We're told to use voice-to-text when driving, go hands-free, and as an IT guy... If I'm not behind someone's computer at their office, I'm driving to the next one. and so I spend all day driving and trying to use voice to text and it's just a goddamn nightmare. It's horrible and I feel so bad for them, but it is um if to be honest with if I typed it out with my learning disability, it wouldn't be much better. so uh but yeah, it's just it's painful.
3: Maybe there's where'd you get the cover?
0: This is a reproduction p44. It okay. looks nice and salty because once again I've I've worn it in the Florida Sun for the last six years. And it used to be nice and dark on the inside, but it's got the rust spots and all that. And I wore it just for you. I usually wear my P41 because I don't like... I like to wear my P41 in public, but because I never served, I don't like wearing this one in public because I don't want to offend real Marines because I'm wearing an EGA. So I wore it tonight just for... Since you're coming on the show. But yeah, I usually wear my uh, P41. And uh, over my shoulder... one of the things I do, to, uh, since I don't wash my uniforms, but I don't want them to stink, after I do an event, I have a mannequin here, and I just put the uniform on there to air out. If I were to rotate my camera over the shoulder, I'd have uh, one of my uniforms here. But, yeah, I got P41, P42s, and all that stuff. And so from time to time, when I'm out and about in public, I'll, put on a, I'll wear one of my soft covers or something. But, yeah, I, I put this guy on today. I, I really wish my P41 was this salty, but it's only a couple months old.
3: The only, yeah, I uh, obviously wasn't able to take the blouse I wore. But uh, so the things that I wore, two things that I wore were the dog tags, which I have and um, the watch. Nice. Which is the only one with the Eagle Globe and Anchor on it. And I was trying to take this my last day. I'm walking away to the trailer and props runs up to me. And uh, I had it in my pocket. And I think she probably looked for it where back in where we were changing. And uh, of course she says, "Um, look, you can keep everything keep the tags, but we need to watch I'm like ah, fuck. All right. So I give back. And then I was on an email chain with some other guys. And um, when I got back to Canada, and I put a, I put this bounty on it. He said, Hey, you know, we, we all know where uh, we, we all we, we all know where everything is. And uh, I forget what what the prize the money was. But um, if anyone gets their hands on it or can find it, never expected to get it. But all of a sudden, one of the australian guys uh writes to me and he says so what's your address gave him my address and he, and then uh he says the eagle has landed
0: fantastic and,
3: and about two weeks later he uh he sent me the watch i just got a text from freddie and i was saying whitlock but it's whitfield bruce whitfield gunny whitfield thanks freddie what would i do with that what would i do without, without freddie this is his uh this is his company by the way devil dogs i'm not i don't get any money for this
0: to Certainly not from Freddy, but Well, shout out to Freddie for making a quality hat. You know, so many people, they want to give out free hats or whatever to promote their company, and then they put on such a piece of shit hat that no one wears it, it ends up in their closet. So shout out for him for actually putting his logo on a quality hat that you're happy to wear, because otherwise no hey, one would see it.
3: Abs- oh, absolutely. The people love this. Hey, get him on the show, man. I mean, he's Band of Brothers specific. He's the only guy that acted in both of them. His wee part we need, there, we well, it's funny because
0: when you mentioned Batman. when you mentioned his name earlier, I googled it and the the image that comes up on um, IMDb is him in a band of brothers uniform. I was like, wait a minute! I'm like scrolling through. I was like, was he in both? Was he the only one who did both? So, oh, so yeah, so yeah, would, yeah, we would love to have him on.
3: Oh, he's a great guest. He's he's foul now.
0: <sighs> we don't care. All of our podcasts <laughs> come with the explicit <laughs> content warning on it. He just
3: has a little trouble figuring out the technical part of it, you know, when he sets up and trying to get the uh, get get the audio, the Wi-Fi on. He, uh, you know. Other than that, I can uh, walk no, him gr- I'm an IT guy. He, he's a great guest and uh, uh, such a big part of the whole thing and um, a good friend all around. Good shit.
0: Now I know you recently had uh, two appearances on the Mayor of Kingstown, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime and Paramount Plus. Do you have any? Uh, do you want to talk about that, or do you have any other projects coming down the pike you want to plug or get into?
3: Um. Yeah, that's... Jeez, uh, I forget when they aired. But I'm. I'm actually going. I'm going to be going to some D-Day events in Normandy. I got invited. To the uh, World War II Foundation, run by Tim Gray. And out of the blue, a couple days ago, he messaged me and he says, Hey, you know, do you want to go to France and, uh, and be a part of this? I think they've gone maybe the last 10 years, 11 years. He said, and this may be the last one. Um, there is a, a few vets. So over say like June 3rd to the 10th, uh, a bunch of different events. There's a film festival, uh, placing, a, a, a reef, at uh, a winter's, um, statue, um, and uh kyle is going kyle chandler nice he is going he's a good friend of tim's and um he was in um, uh, Mary kingstown the first episode he's jeremy renner's brother in that oh okay so so a uh, bunch of the cast um uh the band of brothers guys are going there so um i've never been i went to theater school in england but didn't get over to the continent so um, really looking forward to that, to, uh, to go into that, um, and have that experience.
0: Yeah. We'll have to track you down afterwards and we'll have to come back on and give us a, uh, a replay of the events that went down over there during that, that'd be a, a nice firsthand account for us to have you share with us. Okay. Now we know, absolutely. we know Henry usually has a long list of appearances coming up, so I'll get with Jeff next. Jeff, you have a, you got an event at the museum coming up in what, two weeks?
2: Yeah, Saturday the nineteenth, we we open this museum to the public, and are uh, reopened to the public, and then we've got our annual annual air show. So, um, I, I I linked up with a girl a few years ago who has, and I'm working to get her on as a guest as well with her organization. She's traveled the world with World War II vets, battlefields from Normandy to Iwo. Uh, she's basically in the San Antonio area. She's pretty close to me, so. Uh, she's trying to uh, organize about a half a dozen World War II vets to come out. Uh, I think I mentioned to you guys that Colonel Joe McPhail is coming out. He's he's a hundred years old now, and I've met him a few times. He's just he's awesome. He he flew Corsairs off Okinawa with wow. uh, the Death Rattlers, the MF three twenty two, and then again in Korea. So he's always just a treat to have at an air show or just anywhere um got liberty jump team coming out to display some of their stuff and of course my reenacting unit company b uh we're about 25 strong now to do some weapon demos and you know we are singing dillard sisters live and a10 war dogs blowing stuff up at the end and World war ii aircraft we got a mig 17 sitting in the hangar right now that just flew in today so all kinds of good stuff happening over the next, uh, next two weeks for sure. Yeah.
0: Now we've got 110 minutes and I got to get at least one bad pun in. You just said you guys are from company B. Do you have a bugle woogie boogie boy?
2: Yeah, you're it. Let's go.
0: <laughs> well, much like the real boogie woogie boogie boy, I can't keep time without a band. So you'll definitely have to go out and draft the band. Okay. Henry, <laughs> it's up to you. What's uh, what do you got on the calendar? Uh, coming up next.
1: Uh, well, probably the next thing we're going to do is uh Scott, Matt, Saul, David, we're going to do a part three of the We Happy Few podcast, which we just did part two Saturday. That should upload like tomorrow, Scott, I guess, usually Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay. Um, March 17th, I'm going to be on War Stories with Preston Stewart. He emailed me after we had him as a guest. Um, and the only other... Thing I'll say is a World War II magazine told me they're going to publish my article that I wrote, so I'm pretty stoked about that.
0: Yes, sir. We're all excited. You were talking about that yeah. the other day. You'll definitely have to keep us up to date when that comes out. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I would be remiss not to tell everybody. If you want to support us here at the What's the But podcast, do two things. One, you can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and click on the Patreon link. If you are on a mobile device, such as a cell phone and or a tablet, you may have to scroll down to the bottom of the page to find that orange Patreon link. It is a dollar a month. You can support the show that way. Or as we were talking about before we went on the air, uh, talking with Henry, we do have fantastic T-shirts like my K-Ration Dinner shirt that I'm wearing or the WTSP logo shirt that Jeff is wearing, and you can order those directly off our website. Use the promo code Listen, and that'll save you a couple bucks. But for myself, Jeff Kopsetta, Henry Sledge, and the one and only Scott Gibson, we want to thank each and every one of you for hanging out with us for tonight's episode, and we will happily talk to you all next week
1: this has
0: been a digital 410 production